I'm going to uh, talk this evening about a real central part of human existence, but it's also fraught with danger, and that is the uh, birth, particularly the first birth, for the mother and the baby, and that it has an impact on all subsequent pregnancies, the first pregnancy. And pregnancy is the only time that two individuals naturally coexist. And of course, the two individuals are the mother and the baby. And the baby is genetically different from the mother because the baby has inherited half its genetic component from the father. So it's genetically different. And what I'm going to talk about is how the immune system of the mother actually mediates a compromise between these two individuals. So they coexist during pregnancy, the baby can grow, and the mother will survive. All those three things need to happen. Now this uh, uh, situation uh, is uh, of maternal uh, problems at delivery is particularly acute in sub-Saharan Africa. This is a map of the world where you can see the maternal mortality rates per 100,000. Um, in the UK, it's under 10 per 100,000. In some parts of Africa, it is 1,000, well over 1,000. In Sierra Leone at the moment, after the Ebola epidemic, is the most dangerous place in the world to give birth. And th there cannot be many healthcare measurements that show such a glaring disparity between sub-Saharan Africa and um, everywhere else. And part of the Cambridge Africa initiative is actually to try and investigate what, this, uh, what, this problem, what these problems are. And this is uh, a poster from the wall of the hospital in Kampala where um, we have many projects. Uh, and it, it gives a very vivid description of the sort of things that go wrong. But one in 200 women will actually die in childbirth in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And the major causes of death there are really four, actually at, at the moment of delivery. These preeclampsia, obstructed labor, hemorrhage, and infection. And uh, um, these two in red are particularly important for us to learn about the compromise between the mother and the baby. Now, obstructed labor, I think, is probably self-explanatory. The baby just gets stuck, and the mother has prolonged, goes into prolonged labor. But I'll just talk, to, first of all, about what exactly preeclampsia is, because this is a very, very important and interesting uh, condition. So preeclampsia is a disorder that only occurs in pregnancy. And it's, so therefore, it's only occurring in young women. And because it occurs particularly in the first pregnancy, it's often in teenage women. So this is a, dis a disorder of very young women. And we know that preeclampsia is absolutely dependent on the placenta. And the only tr real treatment is removal of the placenta. This usually means a caesarean section unless you can deliver the labor normally. It uh, has a high mortality for both the mother and the baby. And it only occurs in humans. In this country, in Cambridge, uh, about 4% of first pregnancies are affected by preeclampsia. 
In sub-Saharan Africa, it's probably something like 10%, although there actually aren't any records of any country, so we don't really know. But we know that it's much more common. Now, what does preeclampsia mean? So preeclampsia is, the word means, it are the symptoms that occur before eclampsia. And again, I've only seen eclampsia once in the UK, but this is a poster, again from the hospital, showing very dramatically what happens. So a mother will be pregnant, and towards the end of pregnancy, or even in Africa, sometimes quite early, have an epileptic fit, and she will then go into a coma, and then the mortality rate is very, very high. And the preeclampsia are the symptoms that are occurring before then, and they are a huge range of symptoms, uh, high blood pressure, swelling, clotting problems, renal failure, liver failure, can be absolutely huge uh, range of different uh, um, symptoms. And it's really amazing in the 21st century that this important disease, this <coughs> is the only way we can actually diagnose it. We stand people on a women on a weighing scales, we measure their blood pressure, and we look to see if they have edema. And it seems astonishing to me that this has been such a neglected disease, I think because it's a disease of women. We still cannot predict it, we cannot prevent it. And what goes wrong? So we do know what goes wrong. So we have to look at, uh, here is a placenta in uh, here, there's a placenta here, the baby, and here is the uterus, which is basically a bag of muscle, and all it's got to do is push that baby out. That's all, really all it is. The uterus has a mucosal lining, which in uh, the non-pregnant state is called endometrium and is obviously shed every month, and in pregnancy is called deciduous. So here's the mucosal lining here. Now we want to look in this box here because this is where the problem is. And if you look down here, at, uh, in this box here, it's at that site that the placenta invades into the wall of the uterus. And it, it, and it does that to tap into the maternal blood supply. So it invades into the arteries to access all the nutrients and oxygen that the baby needs right until the end of pregnancy. Because when you think about it, the baby's quite big at term, maybe nine pounds. And it's got a placenta too and all the fluid and everything. And you have to increase the blood flow something like 100 times to support that baby right until the end of pregnancy. So this, and, and given that humans only have a placenta that sticks in half the uterus, you have to change these arteries underneath that placenta. So this is what it actually looks like. If you look in that block, that's the placenta at the top here. Uh, which we, this is the mother's blood is, would be here, and these are the, the baby's uh, things will be there. So all the transport is going across here of nutrients and oxygen. And here's the mucosal lining of the uterus, and this is the muscle coat. And from this attachment, where the placenta attaches, the placental cells, which are called trophoblast, invade right into the uterus, and they home towards these arteries. And when they get to the arteries, they destroy the wall and replace it with trophoblast. And then they come down the lumen and replace the inside of the artery as well. It's the most extraordinary process. It's the only time that a normal cell invades and destroys a vessel wall. And it's uh, obviously a little bit like a tumour invading, because it's uh, the only other time you'd see a, a, a cell invading a vessel wall is a tumour. 
here. So the net, that is, the net effect of that is that the artery, which are called spar arteries because they look like that uh, in the non-pregnant state, are transformed into these uh, big conduits, rather like veins, in fact. Uh, the whole wall is destroyed and replaced by these placental trophoblast cells, and this means that these arteries will uh, have high blood flow at low pressure, high conductance arteries. And it's this that goes wrong in preeclampsia. So what goes wrong is that the placental cells do not invade far enough. So they are, if you like, this is, the, the, the baby will therefore be starved because there'll be a point in pregnancy when the demands of that baby as it gets bigger will be more than those arteries can actually deliver to the baby. And the outcome of that then is you can see here's a normal, a, a nice transformed artery like this with the placental cells driving in and this is one that is not transformed and because of that the placenta becomes stressed and triggers in a way we don't know, we simply do not understand how that triggers this systemic um, disorder in the mother. So this is really what happens. The, final, the first thing that you need to understand, therefore, is why does it not invade far enough? And then you get the, this uh, point of the placenta, and you can see that both the mother and the baby are affected. So the baby may die, which is stillbirth, may be very small indeed and not grow properly, and is often born early. So all those are obviously um, uh, uh, causes of um, early death in a neonate. So, we, uh, so I said preeclampsia is very, very informative about how this compromise between the mother and the baby is reached. So what we really need now to focus on is where is that boundary between the mother and the baby in the uterus? And uh, here is, is it, in fact, between the baby and the placenta or between the placenta and the uterus, the boundary? In other words, who makes the placenta, the mother or the baby? And I'm sure that most of you in this room will know that actually the first thing the embryo does after it's implanted into the uterus here is build its own placenta. The baby makes the placenta. And here is the placenta in black, depicted in black. And you can see by the time that the placenta, is, the embryo is embedded into the uterus, which is by about 14 days, you've already got quite a substantial placenta, but a tiny little embryo. And notice that it is always these placental trophoblast cells that are in direct contact with the mother. The baby itself is never in contact with the mother. It's always got this placental barrier between it and the mother. So this is where the boundary is, and of course this is where the problem is in preeclampsia, at this boundary, where we have got failure of the placental cells to invade far enough. Now, does the placenta ever invade too far, the other extreme? Yes, it does. And it's got these rather peculiar names, which we can ignore, but the placenta can move quite deep into the muscle, very deep into the muscle, and even right through the uterine wall. 
And of course, that is highly dangerous and will again lead to death unless there is a pregnant hysterectomy. Now, there's a clue from this slide, which is a very important clue as to where we need to look for how the invasion, therefore, is kept in a balance, not too much and not too little. Because this, these conditions occur when the mucosal lining, the decidua or endometrium, is absent. And that occurs particularly if a woman has had a caesarean section and she then has a scar, and the, the next time she's pregnant, the placenta lands on that scar, and then it will go straight through. So again, this is something you see in Africa far more than in this country, because they still do classical sections there, rather than a, a, a section through the lower segment of the uterus, which is uh, now would be done everywhere else. So this tells us that there's something about this mucosal lining which is regulating the balance between these two individuals, the placenta and the mother. Now, why did we think it was the immune system that was doing this? And so if we look at this boundary here, this is where we want to look at, at, at the immune system. Now, the immune system, all our immune systems, are designed and programmed to react to anything that is not a healthy cell of our own bodies. So they will uh, uh, recognize, the, our immune cells will recognize <coughs> and respond and react in some way to anything, a virus, a bacteria, a fungus, a worm, a dead cell of our own, a tumor cell of our own, but they won't react to our own healthy self cells. Self is a, in, in immunological parlance. And, but they will, of course, react to non-self cells, and we can know this from transplantation. So uh, the immune system will respond to cells from another individual of the same species. Now, of course, in transplantation, that results in rejection. But in, in, in the immune system in pregnancy, it does not. It's a peaceful compromise between the two. So how does this work? So the first thing we needed to do was ask, what are the cells that are here? What type of immune cells are there under this placenta as it's invading in that might be recognizing, responding, and balancing this invasion so it's in the right place. And they turn out to be a cell we called, very stupidly, very stupidly, uterine natural killer cells. We call them that because they are closely related to cells that circulate, lymphocytes that circulate in the blood that are called natural killer cells. And they were found in Sweden in the 80s. And they have similarities to those cells in the blood with the one important difference that they do not kill. So this was actually a very bad name. They do not kill, they certainly never kill the embryo or the placenta. So here you can see the placenta and all these brown spots are these uterine natural killer cells amassed up against this placenta <coughs> coming in here. And they're only found in women, and they're only found in the uterus during reproductive life when the placenta implants. So they're absolutely unique to this reproductive process. 
And here we have a, a picture of them in brown here, the uterine natural killer cells, and these large placental trophoblast cells here in uh, pink. And you can see direct interaction here between mother's lymphocytes and the baby's uh, placental uh, cells. So the question, next question is, how do they recognize the uh, trophoblast cells? How can they recognize if the non-self that is there in the baby, which is the father's genes in the baby? How do they do that? And so if we look at transplantation, which of course is analogous, we see that we have in the recipient, if you put a transplant in, you'd have an immune cell, and this cell would have a receptor which will not recognize the labels on your own cells, but will recognize these non-self labels on the donor's uh, 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 cells of the kidney or whatever you've put in. And this immune cell will then respond by killing it, unless you immunosuppress the recipient. But in pregnancy, we have this situation, which is rather different. We have these different type of lymphocytes, completely different, called uterine NK cells. They do indeed have receptors. And we have a placental cell here. And this placental cell is quite uh, unique, really, because it's got half its genes, uh, half its uh, labels are going to be the mother's, and half will be the father's. So it's half non-self and half self the baby. And we've already said it does not kill. What does it do? It somehow balances the invasion. Now this receptor here and these ligands in the, the paternal uh, uh, non-self ligands are proteins waving around on the surface of the cell. Of course proteins are encoded by genes. And what's intriguing about both the receptors here and the ligands, the, the receptors in the mother and the ligands in the baby, is that they are highly, highly variable. And what I mean by that is that if you have, think of, we have variation in the color of our eyes, and we can have genes that make us have blue eyes or brown eyes or black eyes, but, you know, there aren't that many variants of eye color. But I can tell you that everybody in this room, all your genes for these receptors you will be different than your neighbor. The only person you'll be the same as would be an identical twin. You will be different. And the same is true for these ligands. These are the most diverse genes in humans of any other genes by a long way. So what does that mean in terms of preeclampsia is, is we can start seeing how this might help us. Because we can start saying, well, maybe then maybe there are particular variants that some women have, and when they uh, are, come up, uh, are confronted by a particular paternal non-self ligand, that combination is not very good. So this is a population, and I've only put three colors on, this is a population of women, to show you you can have hundreds of variants, far more than that. And we see that in women who have preeclampsia, we, we find that they, they seem to have this variant more than normal women. We look in the baby. We can have lots of variants. I've just given you two. 
C2, and it, in this, this, it, here I'm depicting the uh, variants that are derived from the father, the ones that are going to be different than the mothers. So we can have, I've just given you two, C1 or C2, and we can say this one seems to be associated with preeclampsia. But it's not a strong association, it's very weak, it would never stand up to any kind of genetic testing. But what is interesting is when you put the two together and you combine them. So if you have in a population all these variants, and you have all these males who, who are donating different genes depending on uh, what they're giving to that baby, and different mothers with different receptors, you can see that you could end up just with a mother who's got this and a baby whose father's donating that one. And that combination is fine. It's absolutely fine. But the same mother with the same receptors, if she's confronted by this one, she's at risk of preeclampsia. And so these combinations are actually two individuals reacting, and it's a combination of two sets of genes, one in the mother and one in the baby. Now, I know that's a bit complicated, and this is, but this is, a, this is another additional insight that we have that the immune system is important, and this is from surrogacy. And surrogate mothers uh, who have an um, embryo which is uh, derived from a donated egg will actually the, will have no maternal self-labels because these are all different between different individuals. So, in fact, this embryo in a surrogate uh, mother will actually have two non-self-labels rather than just one from the father. She will have a non-self-label from the donor's egg. And it's very interesting and obviously informative that in some way, which we haven't quite worked out yet, that these women have one in three or four chance of getting preeclampsia. This is a very shocking risk that these surrogate women um, have of developing uh, preeclampsia. So one of the first, uh, maybe, uh, ways that we could help this would be actually to select, uh, to avoid women, uh, say you should not be, these women should not be surrogate mothers if we can pinpoint the genes a bit more accurately. Another intriguing thing is that these genes the, uh, are, are different. The frequency of these different variants differs all the way across the world. In fact, you can follow migrations of populations by looking at the different frequencies. And this, this, uh, these, this is the, uh, the, the bad one uh, um, that is for the father. And you can see that this one particularly is very high frequency in Africa. And as you move out of Africa, the frequency drops off. This is actually um, indigenous Australians. Uh, so they have the same high frequency. Of course, they moved out of Africa quickly around there. So they presumably have, have, have the same one. So this could be one reason why that, um, African women are more at risk of preeclampsia. The, the genes are at higher frequency there. Now, I'm sure you're already thinking, well, why on earth, if, uh, if you have such deleterious genes in a population, that if you combine with, in particular combinations, result in this serious disease with, without medical intervention, results in maternal and fetal death? Why are those genes not removed? 
Why do they still persist and have not been selected out? And here we have to consider the second great constraint in pregnancy. And this was noticed a long time ago, which is uh, here, and collected from birth weight in London here, so it's in birth weight is in pounds here, and here's the normal birth weight distribution in pounds, and this green line here is the neonatal mortality rate. The maternal mortality rate would actually look the same. And what is striking is that it's at the two extremes of birth weight that the mortality rate is the highest. And this Walter Bodner, who was this famous uh, British geneticist who's still alive, he said that human birth weight is the best example of balancing selection that we can see because the two extremes are deleterious and it's much better to be in the middle. One thing most people know is their own birth weight, so, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, so maybe you can see where you are in, in, on, this, on this now. Now this is given rise to this concept called the obstetric dilemma, which is that what we've already seen is at the low end of birth weight, when the baby is not nourished enough because the arteries haven't opened out enough, is that we're going to see all these problems that can result in various morbidities and mortality. But at the high end of, of, of the birth weight, we see uh, this great problem, obstructive labor, basically because the head can't get through the pelvis, and the woman will be in labor for a long, long time, and eventually when she does deliver, is at great risk of postpartum hemorrhage because the uterus won't contract down, it just gets exhausted. The baby may die of birth asphyxia or be, or be uh, uh, severely disabled. And of course, then also you get trauma to the pelvis when the baby does finally come through, and that results in these obstetric fistula and other uh, major problems. And it's quite interesting that actually, without uh, modern obstetrics, particularly access to cesarean section, about two in a hundred uh, um, uh, um, uh, mothers or babies will die. There's an interesting study in Indiana of a sect in the 1980s, quite recently, called the Faith Assembly, who are perfectly uh, uh, middle class and, and economically viable, and, but they refuse to have any kind of medical intervention at all in childbirth. They just have prayers uh, and deliver at home. And their maternal mortality rates are 90 times the rest of Indiana. And this is without, so without a uh, uh, caesarean section, that is what happens. So the, probably the normal, the optimum caesarean section rate is about 20%. That is actually needed. Now this is clearly an extraordinary situation that humans have got themselves in. Uh, and uh, uh, we need to think why that is. So if I just put this uh, on, this is a modern day graph of this. Uh, here the uh, maternal and neonatal mortality and all these things. And I've shown you that there are certain combinations at one end of that spectrum of these immune system genes, <coughs> the receptors in the mother, the ligands in the baby, and that we find at this end of the birth weight spectrum exactly the opposite type of combinations. And, and the challenge now is to try and work out exactly what that means in terms of what these immune cells are doing to the placenta. How do they make it invade better or worse. So this is uh, um, 
uh, what we've seen. Now, how did this arise? And I think you really have to go back to thinking about how did humans evolve? How did reproduction in humans evolve? And of course, we've evolved from monkeys. Our monkeys will give birth like this. They jump down a tree and, and the uh, head comes out and the face is facing the mother. So the mother pulls the baby out because the face is facing the mother. She licks the, clears the airway, bites the cord, eats the placenta, jumps up the tree. This is all over in an hour. It, contrast this with, human, with humans. And this is clearly very, very bad. And the, the reasons are two, two major reasons. And the first one is that we are now on two legs. We are walking upright. This is a gorilla, and this is a human. And being bipedal has huge advantages, of course, because we can hold the baby, and we can hold tools, and we can uh, move us. But it's had a major impact on the anatomy of the pelvis. In particular, it's become much smaller. And it can't become any wider because we'd, you'd waddle if you walk. you just waddle. But, of course, females do have a wider pelvis than males, and uh, that means one of the reasons we can't run as fast because of that. So that's the first thing. Now, that happened uh, three, four million years ago, so everything was fine, and that was uh, reproduction carried on fine. But in the last 500,000 years, we have this... Uh, additional insult now of this huge brain. Now clearly there's a huge, huge advantages, evolutionary advantages of having our great brain. But one huge disadvantage is that we have to get it out. <laughs> and that has uh, really given rise to this problem. So here is an orangutan, a uh, chimpanzee, a gorilla and a human. This is uh, the, the diagram of the relative size of the pelvis. And, and the head. And you see that humans have this incredibly tight fit to get through the pelvis. So really, we are trapped by our own anatomy here, and that human birth is this trade-off between uh, the brain size and the pelvic <coughs> dimensions. So this is what happens in obstructed labour. And the particularly uh, difficult point is where the head goes into the pelvis at the pelvic inlet. And in humans now, we don't come out like that. The head has to go into the pelvis sideways, that's the only way it'll fit in, and then it rotates round. And that is the point where, the, where you find the obstruction, particularly. Of course, the other point is that once you get the head through, you have to get the shoulders through as well afterwards, and they often get stuck. And this, uh, uh, this obstructed labour, this was an enormous lesson to me working in Africa, obstructed labour is actually more of a problem than preeclampsia, and it's a particularly serious problem in sub-Saharan Africa. And this is a, actually just to show you the fistula surgeries, and you see they're all concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa. This is called the fistula belt of sub-Saharan Africa. The, an absolute tragedy because these women will permanently leak urine. They're ostracised from their societies and communities, and um, until they have a pair, they're really, they, they live the most miserable life. So this is the situation that humans are now in. 
They have to have this rotational berth, mostly where the head goes in. Uh, sideways, turns around, and the face does not face the mother, generally. The face is facing away from the mother when the baby's born. This means the mother cannot help the baby out. I mean, if she did, she'd pull the baby's head off. And that actually uh, means that m almost all human societies have some kind of midwife figure who helps women giving birth, usually an older woman. And, of course, the, the brain continues to grow long after birth in humans, and the babies are very altricial and helpless. I mean, they, do not, they can do absolutely nothing. So you need long periods of parental care. So this, this actual human birth has really probably shaped human societies, how they have functioned, these problems with human birth. Now, I just want to finish by saying, well, what can we, how can we work out exactly how this compromise works? What actually are these immune cells doing? And I think that it's been a huge lesson to me to work in Africa because this is where the problems are most acute for, mater for uh, maternal mortality and obviously fetal mortality. And this um, uh, Net Nakimuli is an obstetrician from Kampala who came to do a PhD in Cambridge under the Cambridge Africa program. And she, we now are setting up together a maternal health research unit in Kampala to try and pursue this. Because it's obvious that, that uh, there are, and she's pointed out to me, in fact, in this, this paper, that actually there are quite a lot of differences um, uh, in African women at the time they give birth and during pregnancy. And I think they haven't really been appreciated. Uh, for example, the gestational age is two weeks shorter than it is in um, <coughs> all other populations. The babies mature much more quickly, so they're actually very mature when they come out. The head does not engage into the pelvis until the woman is in the second stage of labor, whereas in Europeans, the head would engage in the last month, maybe a month before. The pelvic inlet is about a centimeter smaller. That's absolutely critical, because that's the point that has to get in, the head has to get in, and preeclampsia is severe, recurrent, and occurs um, earlier in gestation. So all this tells us that, it's, that, that really what the problem is, is this head going in is even more of a problem. And once the whole birth weight uh, spectrum is being pushed to the left, so you're getting more preeclampsia to try and avoid this problem. These babies are coming out a bit earlier to try and avoid this major problem of obstructed labor. So uh, it's very challenging working in Africa. This hospital has 32,000 deliveries a year. The Rosie is now complaining because they have 6,000 deliveries a year. And, uh, and, the, and so that it, 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 the staff there are very, very overworked and overwhelmed. But nonetheless, it is actually where we can learn about what's going on and it'll affect African, women of African ancestry everywhere in the world. So I just want to end by saying that it's very intriguing, really, that these uh, are immune system genes that seem to be regulating this boundary and keeping the birth weight between these two tight constraints, too big and too small. Because Darwin, of course, said 
evolution depends on surviving infections. And, and, and before antibiotics, of course, we had to survive through childhood all the infections, all the childhood infections, and get to adulthood. But then you have to reproduce. It's no good surviving unless you pass your genes on. And it's very intriguing that the same two gene systems are actually doing both. These are immune system genes, so they have other functions I haven't talked about in defending you against particularly viruses, but they also are now look as if they're very essential in this maintaining the birth weight between these two extremes. So thank you very much. <laughs>